Hey guys, welcome to the Quacks Podcast. So today I have an interview with Monique Attinger, who is known as the Low Ox Coach. She's a nutritionist and she helps people lower something called oxalates in their diet. Now, if you've never heard about oxalates, this is a great episode to find out the most up-to-date information on the experiments that are going on in this space right now. Now, oxalates are these tiny little crystals that can cause inflammation and other health problems. They're found in most fruits, vegetables, and nuts, and they're not found in meats, butter, and other animal products. Most people who have heard of oxalates have heard about them within the context of kidney stones, as I think uh, I think they cause something like 80% of kidney stones. It's a lot. But they may have a much deeper impact on the human body. So Monique's going to educate us all about that. Enjoy the interview. All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Monique Attinger. Welcome, Monique. Hi. How are you, Lucas? I am doing very well. I'm super excited to have you on. I have been wanting to talk to somebody uh, about oxalates for a very long time, but it's always always seems to be hard to get somebody who's really an expert in that. So let's start by telling the audience uh, what it is you do, kind of your story around oxalates and how you became the low ox coach. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good lead in because... Certainly before I started this diet myself, I knew exactly zero about oxalate. Um, So about 15 years ago, my youngest daughter was diagnosed with an oxalate problem by a functional med naturopath that we were seeing at that time. And I still remember sitting in his office, looking at him and saying, what's an oxalate? (laughs) (laughs) And so I think this is one of those aspects of diet, which has run under the radar, but maybe a factor in how people's health is going. And particularly if they're as I say, kind of trying to do everything right, and they're they're still feeling worse. So that was certainly true for me. I had been trying to eat extra healthy for a very long time at that point. Um, I had given birth to my first child at 40. I had given birth to my second at 45. And my daughter was about two and a half. When I went to this naturopath who had been treating the family for maybe five years at that point, at least, Hmm. and, you know, described some difficulties that my daughter was having, including a lot of pain, uh, you know, basically in her private parts. They looked very red. They were very inflamed. She had these really nasty looking rashes that almost looked more like chemical burns. And I was thinking, if I go to a conventional doctor, I'm probably going to get steroid creams. She's so little. I don't really want to do that. So instead, we went to the naturopath. I described the rashes. I described how I was trying to handle them. You know, I'd been suspicious of candida because she was little and she was in the midst of being potty trained. But, you know, it's the second time mom I was no longer kind of completely in the dark as to what what you do to try and treat candida, and that had not made any difference. And after I did this long story with him, he looks at me and he says, I think she's got an oxalate problem. And 
those words turned out to be very fateful because at about two and a half at that point, I knew darn well this child was not going to eat differently than everybody else at the table and certainly not happily unless somebody else was eating with her. So I remember even though she was you know, pretty little saying to her, you and I are going to try this diet and we are going to figure out just how good it is. And I think she was more like two and three quarters because I could actually sit down and talk with her like that. And um, more fateful words have never left my own mouth because as I started to do the diet with her, all the various health problems I'd been dealing with for a decade or so at that point all started to improve all at the same time. And I basically went, what the heck is that? How is this working? So that really started me on a journey, both in terms of understanding oxalate myself, learning more about it. Well, so so your daughter's diet just, you know, as a total surprise, ended up working on you. Total surprise. I had not expected that. I thought that, well, this 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 particular naturopath had been dealing with us for five years. He had never said to me, you've got an oxalate problem. So the fascination for me was how she was obvious because her symptoms were distinctive, but I wasn't because... I didn't have the same clear markers for oxalate. So I started to think how many people don't have clear markers for an oxalate problem, but really have an oxalate problem under the hood? Like what if this thing's running under the radar, right? At that point, I really dove into learning about oxalate, Going into the research, I should say that I've got a master's degree in library and information science, so I'm no slouch at researching a problem. Nice. And I actually have a bit of science background, um, university-level science courses that I took before I changed my mind and, and did a different degree than science. So, you know, the medical terminology didn't scare me off. The jargon didn't scare me off. And in the process of doing that research, I discovered that my son, who had a problem with allergies and asthma, that oxalate was actually associated with asthma. So then I put my young son, who was seven, I believe, at the time, uh, on a low oxalate diet as well. And he went from a kid who took antihistamines like a food group in the summertime because of all the environmental allergies he had to a kid who no longer needed puffers and we didn't have to give him antihistamine. And I went, okay, I got you. I, this thing is running under the radar. Uh, very long story short, I eventually retrained as a nutritionist and this has become my passion is to help people make use of a low oxalate diet to potentially help them with many conditions because oxalate's pro-inflammatory. So if you just think about all the health conditions where inflammation is one of the underpinnings, if you can reduce the drivers for inflammation, you can improve that condition. And so I really think this is one of those things which is running under the radar. Yeah, so what is an oxalate and why does it cause these health problems or this damage or inflammation? 
Yeah, I, that's a really great question. So oxalate's actually a pretty simple molecule and quite stable. It is something that to some degree we produce out of our normal metabolic functions. So we do, we do have bodies that understand we need to excrete this thing. Um, it is highly oxidative. So it, it does, you know, that nasty oxidative process in the body. It's also potentially physically damaging. If oxalate joins up with a mineral like calcium, for instance, if it precipitates out in the kidneys, you get kidney stones. So that's the link to where most people know oxalate from. But if it meets up in the bloodstream with other minerals as well, so it can bind to things like magnesium, it can bind to things like zinc or copper, it may also bind with more than one molecule of, say, something like potassium. See, the challenge with oxalate is that what I'm trying to describe is that it actually operates as a mineral chelator, which means it binds to minerals. It's a double negative ion. And so if in any combination it can get bound to two positive charges, then that balances out that charge. And so oxalate tends to affect our mineral levels, and that can be affecting us all over the place because a lot of these minerals are cofactors for other metabolic processes. But let me get back to the physical damage. So if oxalate precipitates out somewhere, mm. and we have research that says it can do that in the joints, um, it can do that in the kidneys, those oxalate crystals are physically damaging to the tissues around them. And so it can be driving actually arthritis. There's recent research that I looked at where it was suggested by the researchers that if somebody had arthritis that didn't seem to have an etiology, then we should be looking at oxalate as a driver. And so this business of depleting nutrients, physical damage, but it can also do biochemical damage. It's not human-friendly. In a sufficient dose, oxalate's actually a human poison. Now, most of us are not consuming enough at a single sitting to poison ourselves, but what we don't realize is that if our bodies can't get rid of this oxalate quickly enough and it remains in circulation, we have cell transporters for certain tissues which are designed to pull sulfate into tissues. Unfortunately, those cell transporters will also move oxalate as well as sulfate. And one of the big consumers of of sulfate in our body is the liver. So we can end up with this oxalate in tissues where not only can it be disruptive in terms of driving inflammation, but if I'm the liver and I'm looking for sulfate, but instead I pull in oxalate, it would be a little bit like you walking into a store wanting to buy something, but you've got monopoly money. You have the wrong currency, right? Or even yeah. as simple as, you know, you walk into a store in Canada, but you've got American money. The store, 
you've got the wrong currency. And I would have the same problem if I walk into a store in the U.S. and I've got Canadian cash. They may not want want to know me, right? So the thing here is that oxalate is really the monopoly money of any sulfate metabolic pathway. And, and so you can end up with vital functions in the body which are essentially underfunded, if you will, right? When people talk about having things like blocked pathways, I often think of oxalate. The pathway is not blocked, but it is not being funded properly because you haven't got the right currency. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So it's basically blocking these sulfate pathways. It's acting like a mineral chelator. What kind of symptoms, like, you know, obviously if it's chelating minerals, it could do just about anything. But what are the most common symptoms that may develop in people who have a problem with these? Well, and this is where the challenge comes in. Because as I said, my daughter developed distinctive symptoms. She had almost vulvodynia kind of pain and inflammation and she had these rashes that had this it it was almost like they were a huge hive so I I sort of described them as looking like chemical burns because they were sort of big and angry and yet she hadn't consumed anything she was allergic to and she didn't have any allergies we knew of so those were distinctive enough for my my practitioner who knew a little bit about oxalate at that time to diagnose her but if i if i go to my my symptoms that all improved at the same time when i started to reduce oxalate it's it's very difficult to say exactly what you would have because i had digestive issues where i couldn't digest my food very well and i had to take a lot of digestive enzymes that started to improve as i went low oxalate i had very poor Um, like exercise recovery resilience, that started to go as I got rid of oxalate. I had really poor sleep. I had this strange kind of insomnia where I would would fall dead into bed at like 9.30 or 10, but I would wake up between 2 and 3, wide awake, unable to go back to sleep, kind of fall into a fitful sleep around 4, you know, get out of bed at 6 or 7 and kind of crawl through my day. Um, I had thyroid issues. And very interesting is that research that I've read shows that when researchers looked at thyroids that they were able to get um, after, like post-mortem thyroids, they weren't looking for thyroid conditions. They were just looking at thyroids. And they looked at post-mortem thyroids of people across a broad spectrum of ages. And The outcome of that research was that they realized they could just about predict somebody's age by how much oxalate was in their thyroid. So it's accumulating and sometimes in glands. Like I was on thyroid meds at one point. I'm no longer on thyroid meds, which is just about unheard of. Um, You know, I had I had muscle pain. I had geez, I'm trying to remember way back all the things that I had. But, you know, if you looked at them. You know, insomnia, digestive problems, thyroid, uh, you know, poor resilience. My immunity was low. I tested low cortisol. They don't necessarily all look like they're coming from the same underlying trigger. Yeah. And so this is part of the problem with oxalate is that it can be, you can have very wide ranging symptoms, but what I would say is, in general, most people will have some kind of gut symptom. 
IBS, constipation, diarrhea, GERD, reflux, because the digestive tract is ground zero for any dietary oxalate. So the first tissues that are going to absorb it, the first tissues are going to have to deal with it, are, you know, right from the mouth right through. People will often have some kind of inflammatory thing going on. So whether that's pain or swelling, they might have, you know, symptoms from old injury sites that either don't seem to heal or remain inflamed. Because one of the other things that oxalate does is it's actually attracted biochemically to the location of injuries or surgeries, like places where the body has to mount a healing response that can often in in one of great ironics is that you know the very thing that you're trying to do which is heal is potentially going to be a location where oxalate becomes stored and therefore that doesn't heal properly so are you saying that it can almost get into scar tissue and and make those scars painful uh and not yes i would yes the scar tissue and the and the location of where the, you know, where the surgery or the injury was. So let's say you had a bad fall of one kind or another, and we'll just use low back as an example, because lots of people go down and end up, you know, with pain or, or, or injury to tailbone or low back. And what people report on the support groups is that I had this injury, it was, you know, X number of years ago, it actually healed at the time, I felt okay, but now I've got all this pain from that location. So, in that case, there may not be actual scar tissue, but Mm -hmm. when the musculature healed, the oxalate was stored there too. So, one one of the things I first thought when I was learning about oxalates was well there there was a trend in the i don't know blogosphere in in the forums and this was a few years ago i don't know how strong it's still going today but there was this idea of you know every little thing in food could be a problem so for a while it was this huge trend of like msg get everything out of your diet that could that is msg or could be converted to msg and then there were salicylates and and or salicylates and and so what makes oxalate different than some of these other additives that people are kind of testing out, taking out of their diet. Yeah. I think the challenge with oxalate is because it's in a whole, quote unquote, healthy food, it's not the kind of thing that we've considered a problem. So for things like additives, it's kind of easy to say, okay, those are things we've added to whole healthy food, It's easy to see how that's a problem. But in fact, oxalate is present in almost every plant food to one degree or another. And so it's a real challenge for some people to even wrap their head around that. You know, I've had people say to me, well, I've eaten, let me me use one of the known heavy hitters, I've eaten Mm -hmm. spinach my whole life. How can it be a problem now? And that's really about dosage and accumulation. And so the other thing I'd say is that oxalate, unlike, say, something like salicylate, is a known human poison. I don't think you can 
poison yourself with salicylate. I could be wrong there. But with oxalate, even stuff that we commonly have in our diet can become poisonous with sufficient intake. And the problem is that some of the foods that you know, that are very high in oxalate are things that we really think are extra healthy and extra special. So recent case studies I've looked at include somebody damaging their kidneys because they ate rhubarb to to excess, Mm. but they did it in a way which is absolutely possible just by eating. Um, I also have read case studies on a woman who who ended up with um, oxalate toxicity from green smoothies. Uh, there's another case of a man who ended up with oxalate toxicity with a low-carb diet that focused on nuts and high oxalate greens. And so, you know, some of these things that we think are quite ordinary nowadays and that some people actually advocate, like, you know, a green smoothie cleanse or, you know, f- eating nuts as snacks can really backfire on us. And so for me, one of the hallmarks of somebody who may benefit from a from a lower oxalate intake would be someone who is apparently doing everything right and eating, quote unquote, extra healthy, but is getting worse, is having more inflammation, has less energy, because all of those things would say to me, something's going on under the hood. Yeah, I think that's really an important point, because there are lots of people out there who get onto some kind of quote-unquote healthy diet, and they feel worse. And they say, well, these, you know, these healthy diets don't work. I felt better eating McDonald's, you know? (laughs) Yep. And you would not believe the number of times I've heard that from people where they're just totally frustrated because they did better on junk food than they're doing on their healthy diet. And that's, I think, a really key indicator that oxalate is one of your issues. Because there are so many of these high oxalate foods that we've decided are superfoods, Right. Swiss Mm -hmm. chard, spinach, nuts, uh, turmeric, um, you know, gluten-free grains like amaranth and buckwheat and quinoa. And, you know, we've we've really turned these into um, something special when, in fact, all we're looking at is the nutrient profile and nobody is looking seriously at the quote-unquote anti-nutrient profile. And so... Here you are trying to, you know, trying to change your diet so that you're getting healthier and those nutrients are wrapped in a toxic oxalate bomb. Yeah. So are these health problems, are they pretty well established clinically? Are there, are there studies showing these problems or, you know, is it more anecdotal? What phase is the science at with this? I think we're really essentially working at the leading edge, and some might even argue bleeding edge. So while there are studies which have looked at other effects of oxalate, nine out of 10 studies are only considering oxalate as a problem once somebody either has kidney damage or kidney failure or kidney stones. 
So it's very rare to find research where it's not biased to the kidney. And, and so we're not looking for oxalate to be affecting the overall body. But I think that's a key error and that, you know, our bias built up because how we first discovered oxalate medically had to do with kidney stones. So now we've decided unless we have kidney stones, there's no problem. And, and I think that is a key error. Okay. So how can people know if they have an issue with oxalates? Is there a blood test they can do or some other kind of test? Well, and then that's a really good question for us to tackle because part of the challenge with with diagnosing with some certainty that you have an oxalate problem really revolves around the inability um, for you to get kind of a slam dunk test. One of the things you could do is you can get um, an organic acids test from Great Plains Lab. They actually look for oxalate and also other metabolites that may, you know, turn into oxalate as part of normal metabolic function. And, and that can provide you with some information. The challenge is that oxalate does not leave the body in a steady state. I'll give you a great example. When I reduced oxalate in my diet, I experienced kind of waves of symptoms as my tissues were letting go of oxalate, but letting go of it kind of all at once, and then my body would have to clear that wave. So... With that said, I twice did urine oxalate tests with my GP, who I was able to talk into um, these urine oxalate tests because I happened to know him from before he was a doctor, and so he was willing to entertain. <laughs> he was nice. willing to entertain that I had not lost my mind and might really have something going on. It pays off to have doctors for doctors as friends. Oh, it, sometimes it can be a very good thing. Anyhow, so the first time I did a urine oxalate test with him, I was about, gosh, I'm thinking six months to a year into the diet. Um, we get the test back. So it's a 24-hour urine catch, and then they quite literally test the volume of urine for how much oxalate is present. At one point on the Mayo Clinic website, but I can't seem to find it now, so they may have changed the information. But at one point on the Mayo Clinic website, you could be diagnosed with hyperoxaluria, which is too much oxalate in the urine, at over 45 milligrams in your daily urine. And turns out that a lot of these tests have changed their range for normal, but without looking for whether or not that was indicative of good health when they changed the the ranges. So um, I got my first urine oxalate test back and my daily urine showed 293 milligrams of oxalate. And so my doctor said mm. to me, I think something's going on. <laughs> wow. And to his credit, he also said to me, and I think you know more than I do, you know, so what are we doing next? So I said, well, I would like to periodically test to see what the oxalate is in my urine when I don't feel well, because, you know, this 
that the what little research there is on oxalate leaving the body sort of talks about this ebb and flow of how much how much urine oxalate you'd have. So second time I did a test with him, and oh, and by the way, 293 milligrams of oxalate in my urine was considered in the normal range despite the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. previously, you know, at that point saying that over 45 milligrams you could be diagnosed with, with too much oxalate in your urine. Interesting. So the second test I did... The oxalate came back as 100 milligrams, and my doc said, that's nothing's going on. That's not clinically significant. And I was like really shocked because I looked at him and I said, I can tell you exactly how much oxalate I'm eating a day. And I said, it is not 100 milligrams worth. So it's coming from somewhere. But at that point, because uh, as far as he was concerned, I was, you know, firmly ensconced in the normal range. His curiosity ran out at that point. What's very interesting to me is that in both cases, when I had those tests, I felt, you know, off. I had inflammation um, of various sorts. I was, you know, not sleeping again. My digestion was off. So my standard symptoms were all in play and yet very different results each time. So, the challenge really with urine tests is that they're they're a spot test, right? And it's just what the kidneys are doing right now. And, and so that's a challenge. And then in addition, you cannot even get a blood test, although they do test blood for oxalate, unless you're in kidney failure. So most doctors certainly in in Canada, it might be a little bit different in the States where doctors have more leeway, but they can't even request that that test, I don't think, up here, unless you're deemed to be, um, you know, uh, dealing with disease of the kidneys. And then they can, they can test you for um, oxalate in the bloodstream. But until that point, they're not even looking. Wow. So what I'm hearing you say is that when these... Uh, dumping, they kind of go in waves. You can you can have dumping, you know, really high for a while of these oxalates, and then it kind of comes down. And you can only really catch it when it's dumping in the urine. There's just really not much of another way to do it. At this point, no. So what I would say in general is that if someone lines up on a number of criteria that perhaps something's going on unrelated to anything else they're doing, but they're, like I said, eating a healthy diet, or maybe they felt worse on a healthy diet. They have inflammatory conditions, arthritis, asthma, you know, a number like joint pain, um, you know, gut inflammation. If they've got these kinds of things going on, my inclination after my own experience would be to say, let's perform an experiment. Let's try modifying only one thing, oxalate, and let's see what happens. If the only thing you modify is oxalate and you see improvements in your health and perhaps you see dumping after you've been reducing oxalate for a little while, so you're starting to get this mobilization out of the tissues, then I think that's the answer. Although that's not a happy answer for most people because somebody hasn't put a little star on something and said, this is absolutely your problem. 
I, I don't see a lot of downside to trying and seeing what happens when you reduce oxalate because it is not your friend and it's not providing you any benefit. It's, it's something in our diet which is extraneous, unneeded, uh, toxic to us. And so t- I see no downside in taking it out. Okay. So what would be an example of some of the diets that could run people into this problem? Because like I've heard, you know, the paleo diet can have really high oxalates. Are there other diets that people might try that, that might have high oxalates? Yeah, absolutely. So all the versions of a paleo diet, autoimmune, paleo, you know, any of those kinds of uh, paleo approaches would be a problem potentially. Another one that would be a, a problem uh, would be like a vegan diet because very often, you know, vegans are, again, taking the standard nutritional advice and looking at foods like spinach and so on as being extra healthy. So they might be eating more of it because they're depending only on plant foods. Closely related would be vegetarian diets, right? You're not only depending just on plant foods with um, many vegetarian diets, but you're again more plant-based than most of us. And very strict keto, and particularly if they're eating a lot of nuts and seeds, um, they could really have some challenges there. And again, lots of these keto recipes are using spinach for the green because it's extra healthy. So if you're not going to eat a lot of greens, you have to eat spinach, right? Mm. So you, you mentioned nuts. What would be some of the other big offenders in these diets? Oh, lots. Oh, but just before I forget, gluten-free diets where people start to rely on nut flours as gluten-free alternatives, oh mm. boy, they can be in trouble too. Big offenders would be some of the legumes, um, black beans, uh, great northern beans, navy beans, pinto beans, like a lot of the the legumes that we love in our Mexican cuisine, they would be problems here. Uh, Soybeans are a a notorious offender. Um, Unfortunately, our current obsession with things like cocoa and dark chocolate, cocoa powder has 45 milligrams of oxalate in a tablespoon. And, you know, in the keto world, in the gluten-free world, some people are using, in the vegan world, some people are using things like cocoa powder instead of flour. I cringe when I see some of these incredibly dark chocolate goodies where people could be consuming, you know, hundreds of milligrams of oxalate at a time. Um, some of our fruits are pretty high, blackberries, figs, guava, kiwi, pomegranate, and rhubarb is, you know, a a normal, what I would say is for most people, you could eat a low oxalate diet, which has been defined at like 40 to 60 milligrams, or even a medium oxalate diet, which is kind of 61 to 100 milligrams. So if you think that that's kind of your range, um, a half cup of stewed rhubarb is 750 milligrams. Wow. A lot of the grains are, are problematic. Um, 
buckwheat, quinoa, which is the darling of the gluten-free world, teff. Um, but even something simple like all-brand cereal has cut like 75 milligrams of oxalate in one bowl. Your nuts pretty much across the board are pretty bad. Um, the only exceptions to that would be small amounts of something like macadamia nuts or maybe walnuts. Um, and there's a new nut that I've discovered. It's it's not new in the sense that it's never existed before. It's new in the sense that it's a Central American um, product that people have eaten there for a long time. Yeah. And um, and it's just kind of made it into the, the rest of North America called a Baru nut, B-A-R-U. And that one only has 1.7 milligrams for an ounce. So I'm very excited about the opportunity there because nuts are handy as snacks. But if you look at something like almonds, the same one ounce of almonds um, is going to set you back... Um, let me just find here one ounce over 120 milligrams. So, um, you know, orders of magnitude between a baru nut and an almond, um, other bad ones, a lot of the seeds that we think of as being particularly healthy, like chia and poppy and sesame. Um, good news with nuts and seeds though, is that if you press the oil from the nut or the seed, Every oil we've tested through um, this, one of the support groups that I help out on, which is the Trying Low Oxalate support group, every one that we've tested, regardless of where it came from, is zero oxalate. So you can actually use things like almond oil or sesame seed oil for flavor and get zero oxalate. So it can be very nuanced to understand how this thing works. So the, the oxalates are really kind of in the fibrous part of those nuts. In, in the nuts and the seeds, it's somehow left behind in the structure. You press out the fat, you press out the oil, and, and you're essentially zero oxalate. Other bad things would be uh, some of the vegetables, artichokes, beets, bitter gourd, which is bigger in uh, Indian cuisine, Italian eggplant, purslane, sorrel, okra, plantain, Swiss chard, spinach, mm. potato, sweet potato. So, you know, many of these things are things that people are eating rather regularly or they think they're extra healthy. And so it's a real challenge for people to kind of wrap their heads around these things. And yeah. But the good news is that there can be really straightforward substitutions. So I'll use some of the spices as an example. Um, cinnamon is very high oxalate, very high oxalate, about 35 milligrams of oxalate in a tablespoon. But if you substitute an equivalent amount of a dry bulk cinnamon extract, you're going to get 0.3 milligrams. So orders of magnitude less. And the benefits that you get from cinnamon are still present in the extract. And so... I actually keep dry cinnamon extract on hand and use it in recipes one for one with cinnamon. Could you give an example of like a day of like low oxalate eating? Sure. Um, see, we eat fairly broadly. We will actually eat very small amounts of high oxalate foods in the context of a whole meal. 
So around here, we stick to about 60 to 80 milligrams of oxalate a day, give or take. And, you know, I don't think you have to be kind of obsessive about it. Um, I think you bias your, your meal in the direction of lower oxalate foods. So morning breakfast here, my husband, I'll use my husband's as an example, because I don't actually eat breakfast. <laughs> and he'll have not always a typical breakfast food. So his breakfast most mornings will be a piece of salmon. We buy frozen wild caught salmon. Um, he'll use plain yogurt as a sauce for that. Um, so it's really good in terms of maximizing kind of your mineral intake. And then the rest of his plate might be uh, blueberries, red pepper. Um, sometimes he might throw in another berry, like a strawberry. He might use a bit of celery. He might add a little papaya. And what I'd say to you is that celery is a medium oxalate food, and papaya tends to be a little bit high. But if everything else on the plate is essentially low oxalate, you can have small amounts of these high oxalate foods. And so what I've just described is, you know, great variety, lots of nutrient. You know, even my kids will sit down and eat a meal like that, too, for breakfast. Yeah. What I find really interesting is that you can have two foods that are very similar that somebody would say, oh, these are like the same foods. Like... Uh, I don't know, like anju pear versus a Bartlett pear. And one of those is high oxalate, the anju. And so you could sub those out in your diet and all of a sudden you're getting dumping and detox symptoms and all that. I mean, that I find that pretty wild and compelling for the diet overall. Yeah. And, you know, but that's one of the things that people do struggle with. How do I handle this diet? And... And so often, it can be a really simple substitution like that. If you've been eating anjou or bosque pears, just substitute a Bartlett. If you've been using spinach as a green for, you know, a steamed vegetable, just substitute arugula. If you've been using something like ground cinnamon, just substitute dry bulk cinnamon extract powder. Some of them are very simple. It's just that people struggle with why am I doing this? And, and so there's probably some broad principles, which, which would be really helpful for people to understand. One of which is the one we just touched on a little bit, which is the oxalate can be in the structure of a food. So if I press out a juice or if I press out an oil, or if I can get my hands on an extract, in most cases, I will have reduced the oxalate in the, from the original by orders of magnitude. So we can very often still get a flavor or a nutrient or a whatever, but we just have to keep in mind how the food is processed, that sometimes processing matters. Yeah. So one thing that does concern me about the dumping is that, you know, there's this thing where people get on these diets that are, that, you know, cause dumping or detox or whatever, and they make you feel bad. And 
you get on that diet and you're kind of on that diet and you're just feeling bad all the time and you're being told like, okay, this is, this is part of the process. This is good. You know, stick with it. But at a certain point, you want to be feeling good. You want to be feeling better. So how, how would people who do a low oxalate diet, how would they know if that's not working for them? You know, at what point would they say, you know, oxalates aren't really my issue. Maybe it's something else. Right. Well, here's what I would say. One of the classic diets that people can get on where um, they may actually be dealing with oxalate and not realize it is a carnivore diet. So there's lots of chatter out there about people who have gone to an all-meat diet. And the thing about these all-meat diets is essentially you drop from whatever your oxalate intake was to zero. Now, that can often be something that would stimulate very intense dumping. But it can also take a week, two weeks, sometimes even three weeks before dumping sets in. So if you've gone to a low oxalate diet and you have what we call kind of this honeymoon period after you've started the diet and then you start to feel bad, that's almost one of the best indicators that oxalate is part of the issue. And the, the challenge I see for people who do go carnivore is really that some of these older established carnivore groups will just double down on eat more meat and this is adaptation. And, and they really don't realize how bad that advice is. So for the regular person who wants to lower oxalate, whether your end goal is a carnivore diet or any other kind of eating, would be to reduce oxalate fairly slowly because that helps to moderate how quickly the oxalate's going to that you have stored in the body is going to leave the tissues because that's really the more dangerous aspect of this is a big movement of oxalate out of the tissues and into the bloodstream and then all the disruptive capacity that that stuff has. So one of the things I'll often recommend my clients is to have um, something similar to a carb up day that you would see in the low carb world, but I call this an oxalate up day and Keep the oxalate low for a couple of days or lower and then go up and then go back down to lower for a couple of days and then go up so that your body doesn't get this signal, which is oxalate's gone. That means we have to start mobilizing whatever's in here and we're going to do that as quickly as possible. Because that's where not only do, do people feel really lousy, it may exacerbate all the symptoms that brought them to trying to eat a healthier diet in the first place. And um, I've actually had some people end up in ER in part because of the kind of mischief that oxalate is, is doing in terms of minerals and electrolytes. You know, I've had clients who ended up in ER with heart rhythm issues and blood pressure problems because their potassium dropped low or their magnesium dropped low. It really is something that we have to treat with a certain amount of respect. And these people aren't going on some extreme diet. They're just making, you know, substitutions like the pear substitution and, and dropping this oxalate down to a very low level. 
Yeah. In some cases, that's all they're doing. But if they've been eating, and honestly, Lucas, this might sound a bit bizarre, but I, I've had clients start with me who were eating a paleo diet, and uh, they were over 3,000 milligrams of intake per day. Wow. You can drop from that kind of level down to, like, very low oxalate let's let's say in that 40 to 60 milligram range well that's not very low that's low but you can't drop from 3000 to 30 and not have your system end up overwhelmed by how much oxalate is is in your tissues and can start to move you know i've had some difficulties with with my journey with oxalate uh, before I knew what I know now, when I was, you know, kind of a dumb bunny just learning about it, I nosedived in my oxalate intake. And my kids did fine with that because they were younger and they didn't have any serious diagnoses. They weren't fragile like a child who has, you know, more, more difficult health issues going on. So they did fine. But I ended up in ER once. Wow. Yeah. So... I think we have to treat oxalate with a fair amount of respect. And I think that's also missing at this point in time. We really want to do this smart. And, you know, I, I, one of the things I do with clients is find a way for them to do this where it's more manageable. For some of them, it is put them on a baseline diet that was low oxalate, but they have certain add-ins that they're supposed to eat every day. And maybe one day they're up at 200 or 300 milligrams, and then the next day they're down to 80. So they're in that nice medium oxalate range. And then day after that, they might up to, you know, 220 and then down to 90 and then up to 300 again. Because what this does is moderate how oxalate moves out of the tissues. So it's interesting because that knowledge really comes from the trying low oxalate support groups. And it's anecdotal, but it absolutely works. I've certainly experienced it myself that if you can if you can kind of keep the body on its toes, there appears to be some kind of signaling between the amount between the gut and the rest of the body. The gut seems to be able to to indicate how much oxalates there or maybe how much is being absorbed, or like I said, we're we don't have we don't have a good indicator of how this is managed, but if the oxalate in the gut drops very low, and we have had people report because they got the flu or they got um, a stomach bug and couldn't eat for a few days, that they would start dumping because of the fact that there wasn't there wasn't any oxalate in the gut, and and so moderating it does seem to at least in the beginning revolve around what we're doing with the diet. Over time, there are things that we can do that may help to manage symptoms, but it's it. some of this takes some time and you have to kind of stabilize where you're at before you can, before you can start to understand what interventions are helping. Are there supplements that somebody could take that would help with oxalates? Absolutely. My favorites are mineral supplements. Not necessarily calcium, because when calcium meets up with oxalate, you can end up with this insoluble oxalate being precipitated out in the kidneys or other parts of the body. But 
Magnesium is a big ticket item. Magnesium is used in so many of our metabolic pathways, and it's one of what I would call oxalate's preferred dance partners. And so we may not show actually deficient in the bloodstream, but we could have insufficient for what our body really needs to do in terms of work. So nice basics for most people would be minerals and electrolytes, And for many people, although I would say this is a go slow thing, Epsom salts baths can be really helpful. And that goes back to both that oxalate can be depleting magnesium. So Epsom salts is magnesium sulfate. So you're going to get some needed magnesium there. But it also helps support the aspect of our our functioning, which depends on sulfate. So if oxalate's been rich in the bloodstream, if you will, we may not have as much sulfate as we could make use of if it was available. So if we can provide more sulfate to the body, that may help both with work-like sulfation, but also to help us move some of the oxalate out of our system. So this one's a bit of a double-edged sword and you need to go slow Probably for an adult, starting with something like a quarter cup or half a cup in a bathtub is a good place. And what I'd say is, if you do a bath like that and you see nothing, this is good news. Because this means you can probably increase the amount of Epsom salts you're using in the bath. If you put that much in a bath and you don't feel so great afterwards... This is good news. It's indicating that we need a much smaller serving size, but it's also indicating that your body probably tried to do a bunch of work and it might have been a bit too much for you, but eventually it's going to help. And if you use that much in the tub and you feel great afterwards, wonderful. Then we've probably got your sweet spot for the next little while. So to some degree, when you you perform some of these experiments with supplements or with techniques to manage oxalate symptoms there's no bad information it's it's really going to allow you to adjust and tweak depending on where you're at so are oxalates addictive because i've read of people who you know when they're starting to go low oxalate or you know they like crave these higher oxalate foods yeah i think this is a a big thing and it's not recognized in the research at all, but we hear it all the time on the support groups. And I should say that the Trying Low Oxalate support group on Facebook is now 38,000 people. So it's a pretty big sample of people who, who are dealing with oxalate. But for sure, we see that people have a real difficulty, particularly with very high oxalate foods, And I'd say particularly where those high oxalate foods are very palatable. But I have heard from clients who, you know, were having the darndest time to give up spinach, uh, which is not one of the ones that I would have thought of. For most people, the, you know, the heroin of oxalate is, is related to chocolate. And there you have a really toxic combination because you have extremely high oxalate and you have sugar. And, like, particularly this whole idea of a high oxalate food allowing you to temporarily 
disrupt or stop oxalate dumping could be part of the reason that people are a bit addicted. So not just the addictive quality of oxalate itself, but on some level, if I take a particularly large dose of a high oxalate food when I'm feeling crappy, what if what's happening there is I'm stopping dumping and so there's this very positive feeling that results from it, right? Interesting. So um, I think it's multifactorial. Certainly, I've had discussions with other people who work with oxalate in the background, and the fact that it may be addictive is on our radar. But again, because nobody is really looking at oxalate as an independent factor from things like kidney stones, uh, we really don't have this characterized at all. Yeah, I want to uh, shift gears real quick. Uh, we, we don't have a ton of time left, but uh, one thing I really wanted to ask you about was the connection uh, with oxalates to fungus or mold. Because I have, you know, I've read stories of women in particular who take antifungals and then find themselves sensitive to oxalates. You know, I've heard other people say they moved into a house that was high in mold and, and all of a sudden they were sensitive to oxalates. So what is that connection? I think the connection there appears to be um, oxidative stress. And so that's why the treatment could be a problem as well as the condition. Um, because antifungals are a, are a class of medication where we can be driving a certain amount of oxidative stress in the body. And of course, having a problem with mold or being exposed to mold, and especially if oxalate is making your immune system less resilient, um, is also an oxidative stressor. What I would say on this is that I would, I would really love to, to have my colleague and friend Susan Owens be able to talk to you more on this particular topic because she understands it very thoroughly and has actually been involved in research in the oxalate field, um, specifically uh, with children who were dealing with an autism diagnosis. And many of those kids also have issues with um, other fungal um, species like candida. And absolutely, we see things where people have with the best of intentions, taken uh, the, the medications to deal with these things and then ended up with a problem or they've been exposed to these things and ended up with a problem. But the problem looks very similar in both cases. So how do the oxalates affect the sexes differently? You know, are women more likely to be sensitive to oxalates than men? Well, what I'd say is while it's a human poison for both genders... And again, not characterized, but I, but I experienced this myself. The female hormonal environment may make the female body response to oxalate different. And what we hear about most often is that as you continue on a low oxalate diet, you may start to see that excretion of oxalate, movement of oxalate, dumping of oxalate, whatever term we want to use, may be tied to certain points in the menstrual cycle. And for some people, it appears that it may be around ovulation, but for others, um, 
you know, women report a problem just as they come into their their um, their menstruation. So it's very interesting to me that in that PMS time period, the three to five days before before a woman gets her period, that the challenge there might be that oxalate's another confounding factor, and it might explain why so many of us have these these miserable time periods as we move into our cycle. I got to the point, um, and it, it was very interesting because it wasn't something I noticed initially, but oxalate made me moving out of different tissues at different rates at different times. But as I got into my second year of eating low oxalate, I felt really good. I didn't have a lot of symptoms anymore in general. But three days before my period, I would end up with clear inflammatory symptoms that almost looked like a UTI. And it happened every month without fail and was kind of a challenge. And that proceeded until I guess that, you know, that, that compartment, those tissues had gotten rid of their oxalate. And I'd say, I do think there's some unique issues with women, including the fact that women can end up with uh, potentially oxalate related pain and inflammation, which is, specifically with female urogenital system and tissues which are hormonally sensitive. So um, we, we know a little bit about that. But again, this is mostly from reports from the support groups. And we're starting to see indications that perhaps men may have prostate issues, but not this every month without fail at a point in your menstrual cycle are are you having to deal with oxalate symptoms mm-hmm. so different because we have a different hormonal environment interesting well let's uh let's finish up with do you have any stories that you could share from your clients or you know maybe someone else who you've seen who's gone on a low oxalate diet and had you know a lot of success well let me say that it's a marathon not a sprint so if you've been eating really high oxalate for a long time, I wish I had a different message, but I think go slow and take it easy as you drop oxalate would be very important messages. But for those of us who, you know, where our health is not fragile, where we've lowered oxalate, um, perhaps my best stories come from my own family and my own two kids. Um, So I have a 15-year-old and I have a 20-year-old. And when we discovered the diet, I told you a little bit about my daughter. She's the 15-year-old. You know, she was having severe pain. Um, The vulvar tissues were very red. Um, She had these terrible rashes. Um, I was very concerned because she she showed some of the markers for for, uh, a condition that women get called vulvodynia. And... That was not what I wanted a two-and-a-half-year-old to have to deal with. So very good news story, very short. She's 15, and she has no oxalate issues at all. We've been eating really healthy, but we've been eating very low oxalate for a very long time, and she's doing great. And she was doing great once we got, again, about a couple years into it, although we basically had it under control before that. And there are ways you can kind of support the body 
so that symptoms aren't as bad. But she had to go through some dumping episodes, and and that's not always fun for any of us. And with my son, with him, it was actually a lot simpler. He was somebody who had asthma, as I, I mentioned, and had allergies. And gosh, six months into the diet, no antihistamines. We didn't need the puffers anymore. And again, I... You know, I feel very confident that I've now fledged a a very healthy young man. And with both my kids, I had concerns with my son because, you know, who wants their their child to live a life with having to use puffers and, you know, not being able to participate in sports and blah, blah, blah. He, He went on and has done everything that he wanted to do. He's now at university. So, um, the fact that they're both very healthy and are doing very well is lovely. Yeah, that is fantastic. In my own case, I, I'll tell a story that I think parents can really relate to. I had my kids late in life. So I had my son at 40. I had my daughter at 45. When my daughter was diagnosed, I was staring down the barrel of turning 48 And I remember actually saying to my mom one day, I don't know how I can be so tired and be alive. How could I have this little energy and be alive? And, you know, I honestly uh, didn't think I'd live to see my kids grow up. I, while I didn't have any diagnoses at the time that was really terrible, although um, I, I was starting to have problems with high blood pressure and my father died of the complications of high blood pressure and he died at 48. So I was not very happy. Yeah. That's not a good thing looking down on you. No, it wasn't. And so I, you know, that was a very sad thought to have. Okay. So I'm now 60 and I am planning at this point to be around when my great-grandchildren are born because I feel so much healthier and so much more well than even I did when I was 30. So this, for me, was life-changing. It's part of the reason I went back and trained as a nutritionist. I wanted to get this message out. It it might be life-changing for somebody else, and if I can help one other person for it to be life-changing, that's that's a home run for me. That's just amazing. Yeah, just amazing. So how can people work with you? You know, how, what kind of services do you offer? Where can people find you? Uh, you know, are you working on anything right now, a book or anything like that that people can look forward to? Oh, my gosh. I, yes, there's a book in the works. Um, the difficulty for me is always making the trade-off between seeing the clients and writing the book. I mean, I want to <laughs> see the clients and I want to write the book. And so I'm having a bit of a challenge with that. Um, but having said that, they can find me online at lowoxcoach.com, and that's L-O-W-O-X-C-O-A-C-H.com, and no, I don't re- reduce oxes in anybody's diet. I had somebody who thought that I laughingly suggested that I reduced oxen in people's diets. (laughs) No, no, no. Oxalate. It's just, it's a long word and I didn't want people not to find me because they couldn't spell oxalate. Well, there's all those crazy people out there who are just eating oxen all the time and there's got to be someone to address that that 
poor population. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, they can also find me if they want to learn more and are keen to kind of self-serve and do it on their own. They can find me at Patreon, again, as Low Ox Coach. Um, And there I've been trying to sort of create a a repository of information on oxalate and health and recipes and how you change your own recipes and how you handle your diet and how you reduce. And, and so I'm kind of hoping that some of the material for my book is going to come out of there where I've been writing a lot of, a lot of material. And honestly, I think one of the most important things I'm doing there is posting menu plans which cover two to three days, depending on the menu plan of food where I've developed the recipe or I've found a recipe and have made the appropriate low oxalate uh, substitutions to it and then calculate out the oxalate and I, and I you know, put it together in menu plans so people can see, oh, that's how a meal can go together. There's lots of notes on the menu plans about how they could either change things or why it works the way it does. Um, and then the recipes themselves add even another level. So I might have other substitutions in a recipe that they can use, depending upon what kinds of issues they've got. And a lot of the recipes that I've got also deal with more complex diets because sometimes people have to overlap things. I mean, we talked a little bit about salicylate, for instance. So, you can find menu plans that are low oxalate and low histamine or low oxalate and low salicylate or low oxalate and low FODMAP because people come to this diet with other things going on too. So that's not a bad place to find me. Um, you can you can follow me on Twitter at lowoxcoach1. Um, for those who want to join a support group, trying low oxalates is... Um, a great support group. You can find it on Facebook and you can find it on groups.io. And uh, I participate in both those systems. And um, so people can find me in a variety of ways, but it, they can even book an appointment for themselves from my website. So lots of ways to, to get in touch with me. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Monique. Oh, you're welcome, Lucas. It was a great it was a great podcast, I think, and I really appreciate your questions. Thank you. I find oxalates really compelling. I mentioned it in the show, but the fact that people can make these really simple substitutions in their diet, uh, like the one type of pear for another type of pear, and all of a sudden you're getting dumping symptoms like insomnia, pain, inflammation, that's just really interesting to me because it tells me that something is going on there. You know, there is a real thread of truth that is worth investigating. I mean, if I had a week where I ate some meat, some veggies, some fruit, uh, maybe some pancakes, and then the next week I ate the same way, but I just subbed out all those fruits, veggies, and pancakes for like low oxalate versions of those things. And then I had insomnia, joint pain, prostate problems. I mean, (laughs) that's just kind of wild to me. Unless there is something really going on with these oxalates. So I do want to make one comment, though, about the dumping process. And I touched on this a bit in the the interview. And this is from my own experience. 
because I've done lots of different diets and supplements that claim in some way to detox you, to clean you out. Uh, I think it is one of the biggest frauds in the nutrition, in the natural health world. Not that it doesn't happen, but I think it is a easy vehicle for fraud. It is not a good idea to power through bad detox symptoms on any kind of diet you are on. And so there is this tendency, and I'm totally guilty of this, to think, oh, I'm just going to grit my teeth through these bad symptoms, and uh, the faster I get through them, the faster I can get that you know, good feeling. Well, this may be true if you're detoxing from heroin or you know something that you've taken recently, but it is wrong thinking. It, it's not the right way to think about cases like this, where there is something deep in your tissues uh, because the body just doesn't work that way. You know, the body is choosing the pace of detox. And if it's being bombarded with bad stuff, and, you know, this could be mold, this could be mycotoxins, heavy metals, you know, oxalates, whatever it is, anything, it's going to fight you. Uh, the body is always looking for homeostasis, even if that means holding on to gunk to get there. Now, you want to be detoxing at the pace that feels good. You know, maybe you have a day or two of slightly feeling off, maybe a little tired, but if you push harder than that, your body's going to rebel, uh, and you're just you're not going to get the results you want, and you might just feel bad for a really long time. So I think that warning applies to this general space. I think oxalate dumping is a thing. I don't think it's a fraud. I think that it, it is really happening to people. Um, there's probably some complexity in there uh, with people you know, having oxalate dumping symptoms for a while, and then it goes away for years, and then it comes back. You know, Maybe there's something going on there with the microbiome. We just don't know enough, but I think the warning to just be aware of not pushing yourself if you do start getting symptoms. I think that's really, uh, it's good to know that in this case, it, it applies very much so. Um, I will have Monique's info in the show notes. There's a lot of resources out there about oxalates. I should say this, um, if you Google low oxalate diets, you will get a lot of contradicting, contradicting information. Uh, there's been multiple studies looking at oxalates in food and they don't all use the same methods. So you can't really compare apples to apples. Um, but there is a really great spreadsheet from the TLO Facebook group. I think that's probably the best resource if you're serious about learning about oxalates. Getting into the group, it can kind of be a hassle. <laughs> it's like the hardest group to get into I've, I've ever tried. Uh, you have to join the Facebook group and then you message a moderator to add you to the spreadsheet Facebook group. But once you get in there, you can get this spreadsheet that's easily searchable. It has, you know, very up-to-date information about oxalate content of foods. Um, so I think that's really good to get. Just a personal example for, for this, I was looking online, I found plantains were very low in oxalates. And so I bought some plantain chips and I really liked them. I, I loved them. In fact, I was kind of getting a little addicted to them. I was going through a bag or two a day. Once I got into this TLO group, they had some updated information on plantains where they tested them recently. And apparently they're extremely high in oxalates, you know, go figure. So that kind of thing can be really confusing if you're looking at different sources of, of oxalates, but I think that spreadsheet will help quite a bit. Anyway, that's all I got for this week. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Be well.